friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, I uh, might be coming through a little louder than I normally do, <laughs> which is saying something for me. Yeah. Um, because you, sweet boy that you were, decided to gift me for my birthday some fancy-ass new microphone that I can still just plug directly into my old MacBook, but, like, it has a giant stand and a spit guard and, like, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's called a pop guard so that I can just, like, get real close and just without it, you know, burning everyone's ears. And if that burned your ears just now, um... I blame this microphone that Andy got me. So Yeah, or or Andy who's editing this, right. Either way. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, how I sound, I mean, it really always comes down to Andy. He could turn me down if he wanted to. He doesn't, but he could. I love that you think that. I love that you think that I've been able to not have you. I I, I do turn you down, sir. I have always <laughs> turned you down. You've never heard you not turn down. <laughs> but I love you, I mean, and I wanted to get you something I know you'd been talking about for a while for your birthday. If Alex sounds older to anyone, that's because he's another uh, year around the sun. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, 30. I am, optimistically speaking, a third of the way dead. Oh, I can put, oh, yay, I can put the tick, tick, boom drop that I didn't want to make your wife sad with now. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't you stay 29? Hell, you still feel like you're 22. 32 so not 30 as in as well she is not age 32 she's a month older than me Im- not two years important clarification uh, i don't know man we were lying in bed this morning and she looked over at me and we were all snuggly and cute and she just goes oh your crow's feet are coming in and i'm just like that's fine that's cool i've been going grace since 16 i've accepted that this is just my age and how i look and here's the thing I was not an impressive, like, physical specimen as, like, a young child, but the older I get, the more impressive I am, because, like, I can do things now that I couldn't do at 15, and I'm just like, if I just maintain this, I don't even need to go that much farther. If I can physically just maintain my ability to do this many pull-ups or remember this much crap in my brain... If I can just maintain that for another, like, 10, 20 years, it's going to be really impressive. Because no one expects very much from middle-aged dudes. <laughs> That's true. Nothing more impressive than uh, an older daddy who can impress you with physical things. I like when uh, I like the way you say daddy. I know you do. <laughs> oh. So not to make this in a totally just schizophrenic... Um, little opener but i gotta tell you uh there's a little theme where we've each seen live performance since we last recorded i i had a lovely time dear friend of the show Catherine, um let me know that pup was coming to orlando 
Um, oh. And Pup is probably my favorite punk band working today. We went. We had a lovely time. I liked both openers, which never happens. So if anyone's looking oh. for some great music, check out Potty Mouth and Illuminati Hotties, as well as Pup and Punk is Not Dead. And those three bands are proving it, and I love it. Um, and then I also saw Avita at the Orlando Shakespeare Theater, and it was Ooh. a delightful time. It was probably the best performance I've ever seen of Evita. Uh, Mariah, up until seeing that, hated Evita, and now it's been all she's listened to for a week and a half. So, a good time was had by all. Why did she hate Evita? I have to ask this. It So, in her own words, paraphrasing, it really bored her terribly which Hmm. up until this performance i could say yeah i understand when it comes to act two i used to always like i was there for act one and i'd always be really bored through like the last third of the musical i think she had a bad experience where the first time she saw it it was high school theater and never really let that go (laughs) yeah andy you're telling me that an andrew lloyd weber show is top heavy Really? Say it ain't so. But a high school production. I mean, I, I like Evita. Um, it's better than Cats. Yeah, it's fair. less overdone than Phantom. It's not quite as interesting as Jesus Christ Superstar, but, like, I would put it square in that, like, middle to just above the middle of the pack in terms of, like, Andrew Lloyd Webber shows. It's a solid show on its own, you know? Yeah, I would agree. Like, we saw it with a friend and was talking about them, talking with them, and, uh, you know, saying, you know, Evita's not my favorite. It's not even my favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber, but Shay is probably one of my favorite roles in all of musical theater. Interesting. And then I gotta, you know, tell people that yes, the the musical representation of Che Guarva is one of my favorites. And uh, depending on where they come from, then they look at me funny. Uh, <laughs> and they Highlight, underlining musical representation of. <laughs> uh, I mean, very important figure. Killed a lot of civilians and innocent people, but. What are you gonna do? You know, <laughs> Book of Mormon has um, what is it? Uh, General Butt Fucking Naked. Yep, which is based on General Butt Naked. So, uh, references. Uh, I too saw a play. You did this, uh, this most more recently. Um, it was actually it was a much smaller deal. Uh, that same theater. Uh, shout out to the Magnetic Theater in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, y'all keep trying to do interesting stuff. Uh, the same theater where you and I and uh, our lovely wives went to go see Sweeney Todd uh, the last time you guys were here. I went to go see a production of The Legacy of... Oh, God, what was it? The Legacy of Amelia Aldine, according to your wife. The Legacy... Okay, The Legacy of Amelia Aldine. That was it. Um, and it was... It's a local show. It was uh, written by a local writer. Uh, it was actually directed by her sister, um it like premiered for the first time the day before i saw it so i saw the it was it debuted on this past friday i saw it on saturday and who boy it was an experience it was like 
it was this in, it was it was this ghost story that had this like gay male lead who was struggling to write this novel and he's engaged to this very successful writer and he's obsessed with the writings of this fictional kind of like weird Virginia Woolf amalgam character and it's this funny funky little ghost story thing that has some interesting things to say about depression and art and desperation and living up to artistic uh standards that are impossible and then and it was like a decent play it wasn't it wasn't groundbreaking wasn't amazing but it was like decent until the last like 15 minutes when all of a sudden it turned into like a horror comedy <laughs> like very suddenly as one of the characters as like the main character is talking about this epiphany he had and how this entire experience with this ghost like changed him even though it didn't really change him at all like if you actually go through the whole plot like this that's besides the point then like all of a sudden like a character who was killed earlier in the show like comes up from the floorboards and abducts him. Oh, God. And he needs to be, like, rescued by his partner, who is this sassy gay man who's cracking jokes the entire time and is, like, ends up saving this, like, next victim who's getting lined up for this and is just like, follow us out the window, honey. You'll thank me. You'll thank me. (laughs) And it's just... It was, like, it was a fine play that fell apart in the last 15 minutes. And it was, it's just like, we were heading towards, like, reasonable revelations. And there was this idea of this, like, this cover-up for a murder. But it was done by people who loved her and, like, all this stuff. And then it just, they don't follow any of those plot lines to the conclusion. Nobody properly changes. The only thing we got from it is that this sassy gay fiancé character was great. And he was great from the beginning of the play all the way until the end. And it was just bad, Andrew. It was like a second draft script move that somehow made it all the way to the stage. It was horrible. And I can't stress this enough. I want to support local theater. I encourage supporting local theater. Go out and see local theater shows. This was a bad experience. (laughs) But I hope that your experiences... I usually have good experiences at local theater, especially in Asheville. But, like... This was a bad experience. Oh, that's the risk you always run, so... Yeah, I just... I finished watching this, and I'm just sitting here going like... And I was talking to Stephanie afterwards, and and we did the Cappies thing where we, like... (laughs) We didn't say a word about it until we got to to the car, and as we're walking out, these, like, couple behind us, one of them is, like, talking to his date, and he's like, that ending was amazing, and I'm just like, oh, it hurts me that you said that. Uh, and we get in the car, and I'm just like, what the Jesus fucking Christ was that? <laughs> well, the joys of subjective performance, I guess. Uh, I just... Speaking of things that uh, can be enjoyed subjectively, do you want to get into I mean... it today? Yeah. Uh, actually, that, that really works for both of our topics, I think. Yes, yes, let's get into it. Um <laughs> Y'all, this is love-hate relationship. What we do, uh, hi, I'm Alex, that's Andy. Uh, We bring to you a topic of um, some love for one of us. One something that we adore, something we think 
brings positivity into the world, something that makes us happy and we think might make you happy. Uh, and then one of us brings up a topic we hate, something that we think is terrible, and that were it properly dealt with in the world, the world would be a significantly better place. And then we take a relationship question, typically from one of you, our lovely audience members, and we do have one of those this time, uh, and we try our best to give you our wholly unqualified but very well-meant advice. So, Andy, uh, you got the love this time, so... Do you want to take it away? Absolutely, man. So, yeah, my love this week is the Netflix animated cartoon Big Mouth, which what? Have, so you have seen. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I have seen the I've seen both of the first two seasons. Very good. Excellent. Okay. I, I realized I, I wasn't sure. And especially after uh, another friend of ours, hey, Chris, love you, Chris, uh, said he could not stand the animation style. It, it made clear. It, I realized not everybody might have seen this. But I'm here to talk about Big Mouth, which is a, um, a topical love, as season three will have come out um, two weeks ago-ish at time of recording, or at, at time of listening. It's not at, at, as of time of recording. It's an animated comedy show that premiered on Netflix in 2017, uh, and along with BoJack Horseman and F is for Family, it kind of stands in my mind, at least, as part of the holy triumvirate of Netflix animated comedy shows and it, it it is excellent um big mouth was created by nick kroll and andrew goldman serving as a stylized modern day retelling of their upbringing in westchester new york the show also serves as a hilarious examination of all the weird gross and embarrassing shit that happens to all of us when we go through puberty and stars kroll jenny slate jennifer flackett jason manzoukas jordan peele and love-hate relationship Darling, John Mulaney. She said this, she goes, yeah, I don't want to work. And I was like, you know, the kids don't want to work either. And she was like, good. Aww. And, you know, we've talked about sex education on this show before. I, I can't remember. The TV show, not the, uh, not the concept that <laughs> belongs in schools. Yes, very, very fair clarification there. We've talked about the Gillian Anderson Netflix starring show, Sex Education, um, and how much it's like... It, it it's its own absurd comedic look on, you know, changing bodies and attractions and, and all of that. And Big Mouth is kind of a lot of the same, but obviously it's a cartoon and it leans into being a cartoon in ways that are just frankly hilarious, um, which I don't have we talked about an animated show since BoJack? I don't think so. Uh, no, about? we talked we talked Miss Maisel. Um, do you count Moral Laurel? You know what? I do count Moral Laurel. And I should have remembered that since that's the one my wife guest starred on. <laughs> yes, well. Anyway, um, Big Mouth as an absurd cartoon. Like, for anyone who is unfamiliar and anybody who, like, saw a picture of it and went, I cannot watch this animation. Again, hi, Chris. A little bit of an explanation as to 
why this cartoon is so wacky. Two of the main characters are anthropomorphic representations of puberty, called the Hormone Monster and Monstrous, respectively, who compel all of the young teen characters in the show to do things like jack off, have period rage for the first time, and freak out over their own developing bodies. I mean, just for just for a taste, a, a sneak preview, uh, so you can gauge the waters, the very first episode... As the main character hallucinate that all of his male classmates are giant talking penises. Like, that's that's what we're dealing with here. And I love they it. They get off the ground running. They they really do. And and to their credit, for the se- I believe it's the second episode, um, I think it's the second, where Jesse, uh, the main uh, female lead, goes on a field trip wearing white shorts... And has her period for the first time yep. while on the field trip. Uh, so just to say, yes, first episode, classroom full of penises. Second episode, this one story that I think almost every cis woman that I know has a version of to one degree or another. So they try and cover a large gamut of like, fantastical to realistic to male to female etc absolutely like fantastical to realistic is the just the right way to put it because that that very episode like a couple scenes later has the statue of liberty come to life and talk to jesse about how being womanhood is shit and pain and this is the torment you're going to be living with for the rest of your life with a hilarious french accent because as we (laughs) all should know and remember the statue of liberty is french um but no, like, we're going to talk about it a little bit more, but, like, I don't just love this... I, I, I don't just love this cartoon because, oh my god, giant talking penises, how how shock humor, how absurd. Like, the show really does a good job of talking about everything, the good and the bad, and educating, and, you know, co- providing a sort of, like, empathic, relatable voice for the trials and tribulations of puberty you know you you reminded me i can remember a a period related story that could have wound up on this show um as a freshman in high school i believe we've talked about doing arsenic and old lace before and the thing about arsenic with old lace is that it kind of opened with a, a a big dance number that wasn't included in the show but we wanted to give the choreographer something to do and have some extra people in the cast to come out and do this swing dance. And I remember, like, second to last dress rehearsal, somebody doing a doing their dance routine with their partner and their partner stopping them and being like, whoa, wait, what, what's, this, what's this ketchup on my shirt? And it becoming clear... <laughs> to the horrified girl that she has just had her first period on her dance partner during dress rehearsal. I forgot this story ever happened. <laughs> yeah, and that was on Rami. <laughs> oh, so, oh, dear. <laughs> I can think of one just off of the top of my head, and I'm sure everybody can go back and think about the weird, embarrassing shit they did in high school. I've got plenty of other stories about my own personal experience that we may or may not get into as they as they come to us 
But like, so people have told me, multiple people have told me actually that they cannot get behind the animation of the show. And uh-huh. I get it. I remember the first time I saw this on a billboard of all things, like an, an ad for Big Mouth. Um, it was just on a billboard overhanging I-4 for some reason. And uh-huh. being like, oh, uh, this looks, this looks like it's going to be weird and awful and I hate the one's head and that's all very fair but if you can get past the animation if you can watch like four or five episodes and just learn to accept it and deal with it it is one of the funniest wittiest smartest most shocking shows um i think available right now okay all right that's good to know wait what well, don't write this down are you filling out a form no i'm just drawing a picture of a unicorn oh you have a sweet side. But fucking Mr. Clean. Yeah, I I didn't care for the animation at first, but I also was like, uh, it wasn't so jarring that I couldn't get behind it, you know, after enough time with it. Like, yeah. I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. I'm not going to tell anyone like, oh, if you, you know, don't like the animation, just get the fuck over it and try and focus on other things. I don't know. I, I have this thing with comic books where I have said like, my favorite comics have great art and great writing. I can deal with a comic book that has good art and not so great writing, but if it's just got bad art, even good writing can make it hard to salvage. That's my experience with a lot of comics. So for some reason, I think I have that less with cartoons, but you know, ultimately, if that's something you've got, I'm not going to judge you for it, but I will say that if you can get through it, I mean, the writing, the voice acting, absolutely. A lot of the visual bits. uh, I think, I think the thing is this, the animation style makes the visual bits work. If this were in a more realistic visual style, even more like a, Simpsons-y family guy type of visual style, I don't think a lot of the visual gags would work as well. You need it to be that cartoony. Like, Maury the Hormone Monster has pet fuzzy penises that, like, slither around like worms. (laughs) You can't do that in, like, a family guy style in a way that works. You need something super outlandish, so it serves its form. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know how to get over that. I don't know, or I don't know how to advise anyone to get over that. Really? Yeah, I mean, I'm not telling anybody what to do either. I just I I'm trying to encourage people to give it a shot. I think you actually kind of really explained it very well because you're absolutely right. And just look at like F is for family and to I've never seen F is for family. Actually. Oh, you need to see F is for family. F is for family. Um, is like just slightly under Big Mouth in terms of being a fantastic foul-mouthed animated comedy. And it's interesting because just a tangent now, Ephes for Family is basically about Bill Burr growing up in New York, like suburbs of New York. Hey, kind of like Big Mouth. Oh, dear. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's set back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, that time period. It's really about Bill Burr's childhood. And it's hilarious in its own right. It's hilarious and more of a a family drama, sitcom-y sort of way. But it still manages to be very foul and very shocking in its own right. But the difference between that and Big Mouth is just how how cartoon Big Mouth gets. Like, Big Mouth has the hormone monster Skullfuck Garrison Keeler of NPR, and it's just a bit that is, like, 
presented you're horrified then you're laughing and then it's thrown away or like you said a collection of penis monsters there is a character named coach steve who is this like (laughs) severely disturbed maybe mentally challenged but probably he's an idiot man child yeah he's an idiot man child and like he he brings the comedy into it too and the absurdity factor um i don't know it's most adult cartoons try to stick with a realistic world you know even family guy which will cut away to something outrageous it's still just like oh we cut away to a joke about the queen of england farting or something where (laughs) big mouth it's it's that bugs bunny looney tunes insanity where like we can get sucked into our computer and be assaulted by all of the internet porn that the main character looked at that day that's that's the kind of transition and I don't know. I always like the the weirder stuff. Yeah, I'm into it. Um, I'm sorry. I don't want to. I'm trying not to talk over you as much. Um, I did realize listening back to our Animorphs episode <laughs> that because that was something I knew a lot about and saw a lot of and read a lot of. I was like, let me talk a lot, and I'm trying to be more respectful to you, Andy, my co-host well, on this your topic, which I also care a lot about. You're you're a sweet man. And I encourage all all talking and discussion. I I know I didn't know that you loved this as well, but I suspected because I figured you like me will watch just about anything with John Mulaney in it. This is very true. And also I love the cast. I really like Nick Kroll. I think Jenny Slate is fantastic. I would if Jason Manzukis narrates it, like I want Jason Manzukis to do like foul mouth retellings of fairy tales. Oh. That's 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 something I would love. That would um, be amazing. Right? Like I I love this show very dearly. Um something that I know you touch on in your notes that um is really important to me about this show. And who knows, this might be more encouraging to people. Um this is a very frank th- this show does not hide the fact, even down to its marketing, does not hide the fact that it is very frank in its discussions of things like adolescent sexuality. And it presents these things very much as, here's here's examples of, like, positive sexuality. Here's really, really negative sexuality. Here's an unhealthy attitude towards sexuality. Here's different kinds of... Here's different kinds of unhealthy attitudes. Here's, like, Andrew who is in the throes of, like, puberty, puberty, cannot stop masturbating, kind of hates himself for it. Like, he legitimately does not like it about himself. And there's, uh, I think it's in season two, there's a character that he kind of starts dating, um, not because he particularly likes her, but because she is interested, not in having sex, they're, clearly too young for that and that's a line that they are adamantly not crossing right now but like a lot of heavy petting kind of stuff and so he's literally like i this is the first person who's willing to like make out with me and like hump over clothes and it's a very horrible relationship that he's in and that's so real especially at that age you have nick who just wants to go through puberty. He doesn't even, like... 
he just sees that his best friend is going through it and a girl he likes is going through it and his friend is his other friend is going through it and he's like why am i the last one i'm shorter than everyone my i have no pubic hair i can't get a boner like i'm just i'm aware of everything that's going on with everyone else but i'm 13 and i still haven't hit this stuff yet it acknowledges all the things that are great about growing up and doesn't flinch away from the things that are terrible but also it doesn't wallow in adolescent sexuality in a voyeuristic sense um do you want to talk about the korean spa scene yeah because i mean the other thing that it does and like 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 i was saying yes i love all the insane crazy potty humor but the thing that especially in season two that like consciously kroll and slate and all the writers decided to start doing was they wanted to give this voice for you know body positivity and and proper sexual education to the point where they just went ahead and did it like yes this is a show where a giant hormone monster skull fucks garrison keeler but it is also a show that like takes a firm stance on female body positivity by having a musical number with dozens of naked women of all shapes kinds and sizes including the um adolescent uh girls which the they they did as like a a completely non-sexual but equal sort of thing having all of these women give a music number about loving their bodies all while completely naked completely shown in animated form on netflix in a korean spa and it's not pretty it's not presented sexually it it is very much just about loving your body and i like that and it, you know something i re- i i had learned the male writers were very cautious about doing this and they were like I, is is this going to be the line that you know netflix says you guys have gone too far and it was all of the female writers in the room who were like hell no we're doing this we showed the boys penises we're going to show the girls we're going to do this musical number and i i love that i love the the passion and the like the equality for that you can't hide something because then you're still putting it on a pedestal as if you were sexualizing it yeah you know, the, and it's it's not male gazy right the other thing yeah. that the show does uh, again in season two that I really liked is they dedicated an entire episode towards educating people as to what Planned Parenthood did. And again, they do this in the cartoony way. It's a you know, it's basically a series of sketches where like they go into space and they do the um, fantastic voyage into a giant space vagina, but then they find an ovarian cyst and they destroy it. Or um, they talk about, you know, sexually transmitted diseases by having this zombie parody where Andrew thinks he's giving everybody blue waffle, <laughs> which is kind of the perfect mixture of, of, of foul and, and educational like I'm talking about here. Yeah. But like and, they they do this and all like yeah it's 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 crazy weird situations but the facts are accurate as to what Planned Parenthood does in regards to more than just a place to get an abortion yeah and it's just like that's the whole again I think it's maybe like episode three or four they have a Jesse episode where she like 
puts a mirror down between her legs and her vagina is talking to her. Her vagina like has eyes and a mouth and yeah. it's just like explaining the parts of the vagina to or the parts of that entire area to her down to even stating like here's the outer labia here's the inner labia here's the clitoris here's the vagina and she, and jesse straight up goes i thought the whole thing was the vagina and she's just like yeah a lot of people think that up top la, 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 this is the clitoris it is where the party happens what do you mean by party oh gosh have you ever been electrocuted but in a good way it's straight up like that's such a rudimentary lesson but if you spend any time on certain, like, there are certain searches you can do on Twitter to discover just how little dudes are educated about female anatomy and how confident they are in what they fucking know. And here's just like, it's not even five minutes in this TV show. And it taught more than probably 27 states in the United States do. I was it's about to say, education. like, that's the thing I think about where it's like, you know, I, I I try to think about the states that have like piss poor sex education. And I don't want to throw one out without having a list in front of me in case um, I'm wrong. Just say Missouri. Yeah. Missouri is always at the bottom of this list. There you go. I think about all the people in Missouri who have piss poor sex education and are not going to get this information in any other way. And granted, the young people of Missouri who I'm thinking of here, like their parents probably aren't letting them watch Big Mouth, but at least it's out there. At least they're like, like this is the kind of thing that you normalize enough and you can break down all of the stereotypes and misinformation and you know, bad concepts that cause more problems later in life. And I think that's commendable. Yeah. I mean, it. this show does a lot of things that in the wrong hands... Uh, okay, you talk to me about F is for Family. You talk to me about Bill Burr. I have enjoyed Bill Burr's comedy over the years. Uh, he has recently pissed me off a lot. Sure. That's setting a few things aside. I would never let Bill Burr work on a show like this because bill burr does not have we talked in our mulaney episode about how john mulaney works on comedy as this intense craft i know john mulaney is a consulting producer on this show i don't know if he's a writer but i know he consults on the scripts having someone like mulaney having someone like the larger staff which includes gender parody by the way on this writing staff, having people who will very carefully work on presenting this so that they do show female genitalia in a way that isn't played for gross-out laughs, but also isn't played for sexuality, but is just kind of straightforward. Yes, they'll play male anatomy for humor sometimes, but they also try and give it, like, I don't know, some kind of respect and love. Like, this, there's such a tightrope that this show walks. And I'm not going to pretend that every joke lands. I'm not going to pretend that everything goes through perfectly. But enough does that I am legitimately impressed from just a writing standpoint. Never mind that it's then animated to reflect the same thing. Sure. No, I think you're right Before about we... the tightrope. Um, 
about the only thing that I do have a a issue with with Big Mouth that I I haven't read anything that can square the circle for me is the issue of Jenny Slate. Now, you brought up loving Jenny Slate. I love Jenny Slate. Um, you know, people who are unfamiliar uh, think about Mona Lisa from Parks and Rec, or um, she was. The female lead in Venom that wasn't Michelle Williams. That's who we're talking mm-hmm. about here. She is a a Jewish actress who voices a mixed race African American character, and mm-hmm. I suspect that the only reason Missy, who is the character in question, is mixed, is to provide a toehold for having a white woman voice her. And granted, I'm probably going to put in a drop to show you, but like Missy has a very distinct voice anyway, that like, I'm not sitting here saying that a voice is racial, but even Missy's voice is very much like this weird little character voice, but it's still like the one thing that I instantly went, that's kind of weird. And the show has like, you know, received criticism for having a white woman voice a non-white character especially when at the same time like the rest of the cast and and representation is really excellent you know this has maya rudolph um jordan peele jason manzoukas and i will note maya rudolph plays a jewish woman but i don't know wait maya rudolph go ahead maya rudolph is connie she is connie but she's also nick's mom Oh really? She is, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. See, I, I, I thought my Rudolph was just the uh, the female hormone monster. So no, well, we haven't even talked about it. Like, like you know, you talk about voice acting. Um, this this is a show where multiple people voice multiple roles. Nick Kroll is true. half of the cast as a as it is. <laughs> That's true. There's this he's really Nick, he's really the hormone monster. He's Coach Steve. He's various add-on characters. He's Lola, the girl that Andrew rubs fronts with. Um, <laughs> there's actually this really great clip of uh, Jimmy Fallon with, with Nick Kroll on it, where Fallon is just listing off characters, and you just watch Nick Kroll do all the voices instantly. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. But yeah, Maya Rudolph voices multiple characters. Fred Armisen voices multiple characters. John Mulaney voices a couple of characters. Jenny Slate voices multiple characters. Jason Manzoukas voices multiple characters. Like, it's it's a very fun, how many roles can we play kind of thing. Sure. But yeah, all that to say, like, it's... And I, I haven't seen, you know, I, I've said the Big Mouth has caught a little fire for this. I haven't actually seen any sort of explanation or, or justification. And and that's the one thing that's really weird to me. It really feels like Nick Kroll, who is great friends with Jenny Slade and has worked with her uh, numerous times within his career, wanted her to be on the show and just said, eh, we'll make her mixed. So... Calling it out where I see it, that's the one thing that is, like, off-putting about Big Mouth for me. No, that's fair. That is completely fair. Before we do move on on this, um, I do want to point out, we haven't talked about him, but possibly my favorite character in the entire show is the ghost of Duke Ellington. Yes. (laughs) Which is literally Jordan Peele voicing the ghost of 
legendary jazz performer Duke Ellington, who lives in Nick's attic and throws raucous parties with ghosts of other celebrities and gives him terrible sex advice. And Duke is never that important to any plot line, but it's just an excuse to get away for a couple of minutes and listen to Jordan Peele be one of the funniest human beings in the entire world. It's fair. And I deeply love it. Absolutely, and it's worth your love, man. It's one of the few avenues where Jordan Peele gets to be funny anymore now that he is acclaimed horror Hollywood director Jordan Peele. I don't know. He was in Toy Story 4. That's true. He was. And wasn't he... Was he in The Lion King? Did he in... No, that that was just that was just Keegan Michael Key. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I mean, he's still doing stuff. He's still having a good time. Hey, I'm not arguing about whatever he's doing. I Jordan Peele puts my ass in a seat, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I love it. We've been going a little long, and I I want to wrap up, but like 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 I said, like I said at the beginning, if if you've heard of the show and you've seen like five seconds of it or you've seen a picture of it and you go oh i this looks so bad i can't get past it try your best to get past it i think the show is hilarious i do think we we hardly talked about the humor it feels like but this is one of the fastest wittiest like callback within callback they do a thing where they make fun of binge watching where you know they they look directly at the camera at one point and go you're binge watching this right yeah you're binge watching this they make fun of netflix's format they have jokes that are hidden in the credits they have jokes that like if if you're auto playing you can skip the joke It's so smart. It's so funny. And beyond that, it has a good heart to it and is trying to, like, be a voice for education and empathy for this thing that literally all of us go through. And I love it. So. I say give it two episodes. If you can get through the first two episodes and you're like, this is not for me, I don't like it, you will at least understand the baseline of it. Because... That, those first two episodes cover the bulk of at least, like, the groundwork for the rest of the show. Yeah. Let's go to the bathroom and climax into that thin toilet paper. Let's go, let's go. I'm coming, I'm coming. Not yet. That's why we gotta get to the bathroom, sweetheart. All right. Care to move on? Let's go for it, man. Okay. So, from something that um, we're sitting here trying to convince people, you know, give this a shot, you know? A lot of people generally liked it. It doesn't look so great on the surface. I'm going to talk about something that a lot of people like. Um, and it kind of pisses me off. So, <laughs> uh, As always, I like to an- open with a question. Um, you've read the title, so you know what my hate is. But I'm going to begin with this. Andy, as I always like to do, here's my question to you just to intro this topic. Is there anyone in your life to whom you are particularly close who is super super into the royal family um yes my sister-in-law okay without any judgment i don't need to i don't need anything like that but like what how how does your sister-in-law express her fandom of the royal of the british royal family what happens when there's like gossip coming out when there's a royal wedding when there's a big story 
when something's coming out? How does she react to it? Um, with modern day stuff, I think she she she'll post about it and she'll you know ex- exclaim an amount of awe and joy but for the most part what she's more interested in is like the history of the royal family like more than anything um, my sister-in-law will like binge documentaries about the royal family and of course the crown and get into the oh well they did this this and this and oh well you got to watch this documentary about you know her father and 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 to her credit, uh, that includes all of the Nazi ones. So, <laughs> my reaction. Oh, Edward. Yeah, uh, my reaction is to watch the Nazi documentaries because uh, I think it's fascinating. And I know I'm stealing a talking point, but we don't have to get into it yet. I think it's fascinating that the royal family has such ties to a German Empire of yesteryear. But you know, when it's when it's modern day stuff when it's about um you know harry and megan or or um see i don't even remember all the wives i don't keep them all straight the you know when it's when it's about modern day stuff it's like yeah okay whatever uh let's go back to the documentaries so that's my reaction okay all right that's fair um and i appreciate you mentioning your sister-in-law um i don't know that i've got anyone in my life who is like a devotee of the royal family um i feel like it's something that i hear about more secondhand but i do for instance have a wife who is really into Meghan markle and whenever she comes up she's like princess megan <laughs> um which is not me making fun she's into it um I've, I've got other family who i know i know people who watched the royal wedding and who followed that um I don't know anyone who openly like buys tabloids, but I definitely know that I like everyone else uh, listening to this, go to the grocery store and I see the tabloids sitting there and see the Royal family come up a lot. And I have wondered at times, why the fuck do we care about the Royal family here in the U S but that's actually not the, not the, you know, the hook I want to hang this on. Um, I appreciate you bringing this up. I'm going to talk, be talking about the British monarchy today as just, I hate it so much. <laughs> Andy, I hate it so much. I hate the sycophants behind it. I hate how just like, if you want to hear what I think about traditions, we have an episode about that. This is like that cubed because it's a just giant anachronism that I think is a horrendous tool for the worst people, which I'll get into, but British monarchy, with all apologies to Andy's sister-in-law, my background, I do want to state up front, I'm not talking about this hate as out of a desire to just talk about what terrible people I think the individual members of the royal family are, Um, I do have individual criticisms about individual members. Um, Andy, you alluded to some Nazi ties there. The Queen's uncle, Nazi sympathizer. It's documented, well documented, and he may have been responsible for some deaths. Um, But my main focus on talking about this is the institution of the monarchy and how batshit loony it is that it even exists the way that it does today. 
So, uh, history-wise, you say you've watched a couple of these documentaries. Have you watched any of the old the documentaries on the like older older times, Andy? Uh, not really. No, to be perfectly honest. Okay, I- I'm curious here because um, you had a slightly different uh, public school education than I did because you didn't come to Florida's public schools until you were already in high school. Correct. I think. How much of, like, the English monarchy, English dynasties were you taught about in just, like, world history classes? Certainly. I assume you can name Henry VI. <laughs> right. Yeah. Henry VI and going into the Tudors and then it gets all pretty muddy after the War of the Roses ends. You get into Victoria and Victorian England and... That comes up more in just like it was turn of the century, and that's why we call it Victorian. And then it it kind of gets muddy again, and we've got Queen Elizabeth from the House of Windsor, and she's been there ever since. I mean, honestly, there I feel like very little of the British royal hierarchy was in my education. I mean, it's. You know, it's 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 King John, and then Henry the Sixth, and then Queen Victoria, and then Queen Elizabeth. Sure, and that's roughly what a lot of us get. We kind of get like, all right, there's here's Henry the Fifth, here's the Tudor dynasty. Let's get into the Stuarts, uh, Victoria, I guess. Some shit around World Wars One and Two. We all saw the King's Speech, uh, and then you know, and then it's Elizabeth from 1950s onward. Uh, which is fine. I, I, I'd argue that, like, I, I'm never a proponent of less education, but I do think that that seems to be a fairly universal touchstone point um, for American education, and I don't think that that's wholly inappropriate. The For context, the British monarchy, as we understand it now, came to be during the 19th century, during the reign of Queen Victoria. Uh, Which is to say, going back to, like, William and Mary, um, that was the point at which they started kind of setting up these constitutional monarchy situations where power was being siphoned away from the crown over into parliament. Uh, And and that's not to say it was, that's exactly where it started, but by the time you get to Queen Victoria, late 19th century, we have roughly the institution of the monarchy that we have now. Might I introduce Her Majesty Queen Victoria, Empress of India and Defender of the Faith. Uh, Wherein governing power, in all technical terms of it, rests with the Prime Minister and Parliament, and the royal family now basically functions as a figurehead that that effectively just doles out honors and does the ceremonial sign-offs, has really only symbolic power. Um, Have you seen The Crown, Andy? I have. I've seen... Um, all but the last episode because we 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 have a thing in our household where especially when Mariah loves a show we don't watch the last episode until the next thing is out. But yes, I've seen the crown. Interesting. Okay, uh, I'm intrigued there. I won't spoil that last episode for you, <laughs> but um, but if you've seen the crown, you know that a lot gets said uh, of how. You know, The Crown is this Netflix show which follows Queen Elizabeth as she becomes Queen Elizabeth. Uh, That's the current Queen Elizabeth, along with the marriage to Philip, the having of those kids, 
um, various events that surrounded there. I love that show. I will probably talk more about how I love that show throughout this hate, but there are certain things that I have a lot of trouble forgiving it for. For one thing, it made uh, John Lithgow, who is one of my favorite actors of all time, portray a sympathetic Winston Churchill. <laughs> and to me, to me, Winston Churchill is a man to be regarded as uh, basically definitely better than Nazis and probably better than Stalin. That's the best thing I can say about Winston Churchill. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, you starve that many in people in the Indian continent. And, eh. Anyway, all this to say, in The Crown, they make a point uh, a couple of times of saying that the government is in the name of the Queen. It's in her name. Um, all the actions Parliament takes, all the, you know, all the decisions the Prime Minister and his Cabinet make, it's all in service of government in the name of the Crown. And that's that might seem very numinous, especially um, to U.S. listeners who, if you have any civics education, you're basically told that, civically speaking, government is in the name of the people because we're we're a representative government. We're we're a republic. You might get people say stupid shit like it's in the name of the Constitution or the name of the flag. Those people should not be taken seriously. But that's kind of how she functions. It's it's this figure of the state. The main things I want to touch upon, I think I'm going to go out of order from how I normally do these lists and just start on the colonialist aspect. No one out there with a vague history with any vague notion of history uh, should be surprised to hear that uh, there used to be colonies. Britain, Britain used to have colonies. Andy, did you know Britain used to have colonies? <laughs> I, I think I, I think I remember that. Uh, that that okay, might have been yeah, in that yeah. history lesson. Yeah, yeah, no. And, and in the U.S., we make a very big deal about you know our colonial roots. In academic circles, the term colonialist or post-colonialist um, or post-colonial actually refers to a very particular kind of way of looking at history and literature, um, specifically through the lens of the effects that that early colonial period had. I kind of argue that the royal family, the British monarchy, its very existence is a shred of colonialism. Like, it has colonialist roots. No one, I think, is going to argue with that. But it's clung to by people who I don't think properly understand the dangers of colonialism. And we can talk about the symbolic power of the crown for hours, but it doesn't change the fact that we're still organizing a lot of the world based on those old colonial terms. Um, what does the word commonwealth mean to you, Andy? Um... It makes me think more of like the collection of people that are your constituents, really. That's interesting. Um, so you as a hockey fan, um, I assume you are familiar with uh, some Canadian hockey. Is that correct? I am indeed. I'm, I'm, okay. pu I'm puzzled and tickled pink as to where this is going. <laughs> okay, no, I, I, have a play, I have a way I'm going here. I'm a weightlifting fan. Weightlifting um, has what's called um, the Commonwealth Games. 
Uh, very similarly to how we have the Pan-American Games, uh, which is all the countries of North and South America, Pan-American. There is a specific competition in weightlifting called the Pan-American Games, which just features those countries. There's the Pan-Pacific Games. Uh, anyone who's a fan of the Boz Lerman classic Strictly Ballroom will remember the Pan-Pacific uh, Pan Grand Prix, which was a ballroom dance competition of just Pacific nations. Uh, that is New Zealand, Australia, Papua New Guinea, wherever else there. Um, my Pacific geography isn't great. We also have the Commonwealth Games. I do believe there is a hockey Commonwealth tournament. Uh, if I remember, if I, if my research was correct, I don't remember when it is, and I doubt that it's very highly advertised in the U.S. But it's a competition between the nations of the British Commonwealth. <laughs> that's Canada. That's Australia. That's New Zealand. That's Papua New Guinea. That's the Bahamas and Belize. So you're right, and I'm shocked that you're right, but uh, important clarification. You're shocked that I'm right. Thank you, Andy. Well, you're shocked that I'm right. <laughs> it has more to do with me being like, there's this hockey thing I had no idea existed. It, it, important clarification Field hockey. <laughs> uh, but hey, as they say in hockey, let's do that hockey. I guess there's not enough other countries in the Commonwealth that like hockey. I guess not. I think it uh, must be a really unpopular, shitty sport. <laughs> well, think about a lot of those other countries in the Commonwealth. I was about to say. <laughs> Barbados, Australia, New cool, Zealand. Cool Runnings yeah. 2 could be about the Barbados hockey team. Jesus Christ. Okay. Doesn't change the fact. There are multiple sports leagues which hold Commonwealth games. Sure. Fucking why? Why? Well, All of those countries are function are functionally independent. They they fall in, they they elect their own legislature, they handle their own budgets. They are no longer under the dominion of the queen except for the fact that she still claims queenhood in all of them. There's a reason that the Queen of England is no longer the Empress of India, the way that she was in Queen Victoria's time. That's because India fucking separated in some pretty extreme ways and make a point of no longer being featured in the Commonwealth. For me, the presence of the crown claiming this kind of colonial authority, even symbolically, is dark as fuck. The only countries that aren't featuring in, in the Commonwealth are the ones that left the most violently. Sure. And... The rest... Go ahead. Well, so maybe this leans into your other points. Maybe it doesn't, but I, I think it really is kind of this cult of personality around... Queen Elizabeth around the the concept of, of the royals, you know, you, you bring up Canada and it's an important thing to to remember Queen Elizabeth is on Canada's printed currency. Like instead of George Washington, it's Lizzie on a loony. Which Lizzie on a loony, that's a punk band name. I'd play bass in that. Right? It's it, it. I think it just becomes all of this. Oh, we love the queen, and oh, the queen, and oh, 
oh we yes we aren't part of this empire anymore but once a time once upon a time we were and it was during this chick's lifetime and don't we love her and i can't give you a better reason other than that other than it's just wow gosh let's let's look at this this thing one of the one what the the most popular the most famous queen still living let's see what she's up to and I'm sitting here going like, okay, yes, I spent last episode um, decrying guillotine fetishism. And I still decry guillotine fetishism. That doesn't change the fact that, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, did, didn't we decide, like, in the Western world, not, not too long ago, but a long enough ago amount of time, that queens were an inherently immoral thing to have? That royal families were an inherently immoral thing to have? Some of us got rid of them. The French got rid of them. The French got rid of them hard. Yeah. Um, arguably a little too hard. Um, but, you know, say la vie. Uh, or say la mort. Okay, that's... <laughs> uh, I hate myself a little. But my point is, for some reason, uh, in England, uh, in Britain, we just decided that, or they just decided that to maintain this. And, and the thing is, historically, they got rid of the monarchy at one point. They ended up bringing it back just because uh, they were bad at governing themselves in the late 1600s, which, you know, fair enough. You know, not, not the, rest of the, the rest of the world hadn't necessarily caught on at that point. But it doesn't change the fact that this thing, this thing is clung to. Another thing I wanted to talk about is how the monarchy is clung to by a very particular subset of English nationalists, you know, and, and to clarify, um, in some cases, that's because she's head of the Anglican church, church of England. Um, I actually have no beef with the queen being head of the Anglican church. To me, she's basically just like a hotter Pope. That was very sexist, and I apologize. That was a terrible, <laughs> terrible joke. Besides everything else. Oh, my God. Um, my point is this. Anglican church head, not a problem. The Anglican church is the state church of England. It's, uh, I think it's the official religion of Canada. It is a vibrant sect of Christianity and Protestantism that, you know, is, is as valid as anything else. It's as valid as the Catholicism that I was raised with. But because it is the state church of a country that has clung to a lot of deeply colonialist attitudes, um, which I think have been reinforced by the continued existence of the monarchy, it's used as a tool by those nationalists. You know, if you spend any time reading the UK papers concerning Brexit, especially on the conservative side, especially on the extremist right-wing side, there are references, there's still references to queen and country there. There's justification of barring refugees from the queen's land. There is still talk of keeping Muslims out to keep England Anglican, you know. And Britain has freedom of religion. They have a state church, but they have guaranteed in their constitution a right to free worship but because we have tied the head of the anglican church into this weird amalgamated symbolic government thing it's a ready tool 
to justify some really horrible actions. And the thing is, even if the royal family wants to speak out against this, even if the queen wanted to speak out against this, and don't get me wrong, the queen, you know, she she fought the battles against the Nazis her own self. She served in World War II. I believe she was a mechanic. That is correct, yep. Yes, I think she I think she repaired vehicles, which like badass, you know, I all commendations for that. When it came out about her uncle, when the news came out about her uncle, yes, she kind of moved to not exactly throw him under the bus or anything, but she put in she put in distance there. She denounced where she needed to denounce. I don't think the Queen of England holds Nazi sympathies, but her station is such that when Boris Johnson was sworn in as prime minister, even if she had an opinion to give, she couldn't give it because of the strictures of this. So she has this symbolic power that she can't even use for good. She has to use it for whatever the means are of, the, of her surroundings. So what's the fucking point of having this? Yeah, and I mean, I, I like... Do you know how many countries in the world are still absolute monarchies? I have it in front of me, if you don't, but... Oh, no, I please, by all means. Three. Oman, Saudi Arabia, and Swaziland are the only three absolute monarchies still in the world. Spain is a parliamentary monarchy, and any anywhere else, there's about, like, 37 other nations in the world that still have royalty, and they're all constitutional monarchies. So, like, obviously, the British royal family at one point in time was an absolute monarchy. And, Hmm. you know, we spent a lot of time in the past couple centuries moving away and weaning out and, and separating, like, what the queen and king can actually do and what the royal family actually does. But we didn't get rid of them. And, you know, I, I brought up that, you know, Queen Elizabeth is the probably the most famous royal person alive today. You know, she's certainly she's definitely the longest serving. Absolutely. And I think these two things intersect in a in a way where it's like it, it it's we took all of the power and teeth away from this figure. But at the same time, this figure has been serving for the better part of a century now and everybody knows her. And, and I think about how, you know, England as a power country still had all these ties with all these other countries where, where I'm going with all this is I think the queen, the only purpose she serves now in the real world is as almost a a thing to look at. Queen Elizabeth is tremendously important. I mean, people such as myself have grown up watching her waggle her hand back and forth. Uh, A a tourist attraction. You know, my wife went to England on a post-college trip and saw Buckingham Palace and saw, you know, the royal carriage, which is the size of my apartment bedroom, and you know all the wonderful things and and stepped out on the boat and all of the stuff and it was just like just a tour a tour of this woman who's still alive's house and we don't do that for actors we 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 don't do that for other heads of state 
Although I'd pay money to go on a tour of Trump's house just to see what I could find. <laughs> and Jesus like, Christ. It's just, I think about the Olympics and everybody was all, oh, so charmed with the Olympics. And, and that meme made its way around where you had Elizabeth looking out over the procession of look at all these countries I used to own. And it was a very funny joke and we all laughed at it. But like by, by making it a joke and something to laugh at, we defang any critical thought of the subject. The subject being, why is the royalty still a thing and held in such high regard? So my answer to you is at this point, they are just tabloid fodder and, and a tourist spectacle. Which is sad because um, I threw this in the notes. I didn't know if it was something that we would talk about or not, but... Um, if I'm going to get on my redistribution of wealth high horse, um, the royal family uh, is worth about $88 billion. Uh, if you include, you know, plain old cash, their incredible art collection, their various investments, their real estate holdings, $88 billion. Um, and, and in fairness, a lot of people who uh, try to defend them against like, oh, we shouldn't even have a monarchy anymore, will say that tourism relating to the royals is a huge part of the British economy. It accounts for $1.6 billion of tourist revenue a year, uh, which is 0.05% of the UK's annual income, Andrew. It is bullshit. Those holdings, that money. You could give every single member of the royal family a pension that will last into their grand, each of their grandchildren's lifetimes. And you would still have enough holdings in the family's full estate to do a lot more useful shit for the English economy. Sure. You know, Stephen Hawking famously declined a knighthood from the Queen in the 1990s. And his stated purpose was it was because of the UK's horrible science funding policy. And he called out the royal family's financial holdings as part of that decision. Because Stephen Hawking, for whatever issues were involved with him, and he was not a perfect man, at least had the integrity as a British man who supported labor and supported science and supported reason to go, this fucked up. Take your knighthood and shove it. <laughs> Which... Maybe I sound whiny on this. Well... Maybe I do. I, I want to admit that. Like, I'm not British. I don't know what, like, I like Downton Abbey a lot, yo. I enjoyed the King's speech. I watched The Crown. I will watch The Crown when it when season three comes out, and they've, you know, they've cast someone new as Elizabeth and Philip. Olivia Coleman. Oh. So excited. Oh, is, is it going to be Olivia Coleman? Yes, it is. All right, I'm in. I'm down for that. Um, I love Claire Foy. I love Matt Smith. But I will watch The Crown. I, I'm going to be completely honest with that. I'm looking forward to the Downton Abbey movie. And I can hold those two thoughts in my head. I can hold the thought in my head where I go, these are compelling characters for narrative. And the fact that they have any power, authority, symbolic or otherwise is a travesty against reason and justice and is essentially a tool to make people who don't 
have enough in their lives feel a little better about themselves at the cost of giving nationalists and colonialists a tool for their rhetoric. And I'm sorry, I don't think it's worth it. You're right, they're tabloid fodder to a lot of people. A lot of people feel good having tabloid fodder, but it just doesn't shake out as justified to me. And that's why I hate it. And that's why I wish that it would just be dismantled and abolished. Give them their pensions. Let them live out the rest of their lives as lords and dukes and duchesses and the whole shebang. I don't care. It doesn't belong. And I, that's coming from me, an American. My opinion doesn't matter as much about it. I have a lot of criticisms about American policy and things that I don't think should exist. <coughs> Electoral college. Um, but... <laughs> This is the, this this tiny platform I have. I just want to state a case, bad as it is, that the royal family is at best pointless and meaningless, and at worst a tool for legitimate evil. So get rid of it. Amen, man. No such thing as a good billionaire. I mean, just saying. <laughs> Uh, you want to move on? Yeah, let's get into it. I uh, we we've got a a work related question uh, this we week. We do. We've been getting those. Um, I do want to say up front. Um, at the time of recording, we have not yet posted our first episode with the relationship.txt question yet. However, we've seen a fair amount of Twitter engagement about this. So. I'm going to put a call out there. If you yourself don't have a relationship question for your own personal relationship, but you stumble across something like that on Reddit or Twitter and you want to send it our way, please do. Because that was a lot of fun to talk about. We got a real question here. And again, if you have a real relationship question, please send it our way. We're happy to take it. And we will prioritize those. Yes, always. Uh, But feel free to send them our way because that was a lot of fun. It's been fun following that account and looking at this stuff. I'm not a redditor by any by any stretch of the imagination, but I do like Twitter. So send it our way, uh, and we'll definitely have some looks. Heck yeah! In the meantime, in the meantime, um, we have this. Hi, LHR. Do you guys have any tips for job interviews? I know that you sometimes help people with work relationships, and I figure that one of the most important ones is building a good one off the bat when interviewing for something. I'm 24, have had jobs in the past, but I'm currently between some and think my interview game is really soft. I think I say too much generic things like I just work too hard sometimes when they ask about weaknesses and stuff like that. Any tips can help. Thanks. And that is from Chris Gardner, which is Will Smith's character from The Pursuit of Happiness. And they specified that. Which is important, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fair because I would I I saw the pursuit of happiness and I went I don't remember that character's name at all. I do remember reading a thing about how that movie paints a pretty glossy picture on a dude who was maybe not as great as the movie presents. But that's setting the things aside. Chris, how are you, buddy? I'm in a competitive internship at D. Witter. Uh, I'm glad to see you getting out there. Um. I've got some suggestions to help with interviews. Andy, do you have any? You go first, my man. I I read the question. Okay, cool. So to start off with, I'm glad that you point out that you say some kind of generic things like I just work too hard sometimes, which anyone who's ever done interviews hears that a lot. And it is a bullshit answer. I think everyone knows it's a bullshit answer. 
So the thing that I'm going to say to you, Chris, is as often as possible, when you're struck with questions like that, try and answer them honestly. Like you're, you are saying that you are coming up with that generic answer because you want to impress somebody because you don't view the person interviewing you as another person. You view them as maybe a barrier to get the job you want. Maybe you view them as someone who is judging you. Um, Maybe you view them as an adding machine or computer that you need to punch the right algorithm into so that you will get rewarded with jobs. I don't know. But the point is you're not viewing them as a person that you're looking to build a relationship with. When they ask you a question like, what are your weaknesses or what do you consider your weaknesses? The point of the question is not for you to talk about how you don't have any weaknesses or how the weaknesses you think you have are really positive. It's so that they can gauge how much you really understand about yourself. When I'm in a job interview and someone asks me, what do you think your, your biggest weaknesses are? Or what are things you need to work on? My answers usually range around things like, I need to get better at prioritizing sometimes. Sometimes it's very difficult for me to prioritize larger or more complicated or difficult tasks over smaller, easier, or more enjoyable ones. And that's something that I have been working on. You don't take that opportunity to pretend you don't have weaknesses. You take that opportunity to articulate the work you've done on yourself as far as recognizing those weaknesses and active steps that you take to get better at them. They ask me, what are your weaknesses? I say, I'm bad at prioritizing. I tell them, I'm working on that by doing things like making a point of keeping a Google calendar with my tasks lists, with writing lists, with actually analyzing how much time tasks take and setting rules for myself that I can work on this, but only after I've done this. And I can be honest and say that I'm not perfect at it yet, but I can show them this is something I recognize and this is something I'm taking steps towards. Andy, what's one of your biggest weaknesses in a job? Or in a job situation? Uh, one of my biggest weaknesses in a job situation is I find that when I don't have a task readily in front of me, when I've when I've completed all of my work, I have trouble I have trouble finding that next task on my own to do. I swear I'm, I'm there you go. blanking on the word right now. <laughs> No, you have, you have trouble coming. That's great. You have trouble with having that kind of self-initiative. Sure. Yes. Now, now I'm not going to lie. If I'm interviewing Andy for a supervisor position where he's got to monitor a whole bunch of other people and I need to, I need him to have big ideas for increasing productivity, that's a weakness where I might ask him, I might follow up and ask, what are you doing to address that? If Andy is just starting entry level, and I know for a fact he's going to be supervised, or he's going to have a team, or he's going to have tasks lists, who gives a shit? He's always going to have those things, and he's honest with me about it. You're more likely to make those connections by having that kind of honesty. Andy, you got something for him? Yeah, and you know, I think that's a great point because I didn't even I, what, what you say is absolutely true, but I think you delved in it, delved into it in a way that I might not have uh i'm gonna give you another idea chris and another avenue you talk about you know your your priority here your focus is making the good first impression and 
you know, you make a good first impression by making a good first walk in the door impression. You know, one of the things you can do to really help with a job interview is a lot of visual preparedness stuff, you know, depending on the level of job you are going for, you know, you, you either put on a nice button up shirt or you put on a nice polo if it's a little more casual. Um, you know, uh, if you, you can go and like, you know, clean yourself up, get a haircut, or if you, you know, if, if getting a haircut is an expense that you can't afford right now, you know, you can at least make sure you look nice, do your best, put on deodorant, print out a nice glossy resume. And there's, you know, all these little visual things you can do that might not get you the job, but not doing them might not get you the job, if that makes sense. I, I work in video production, which is, you know, pretty laid back, a lot of tattoos, a lot of, you know, black polo shirts. But, you know, anytime I've still interviewed for a position, you know, I make sure that, you know, the beard's not too crazy, the hair's not too wild, and then I'm not walking in with a Slayer shirt. Now, I might walk in and notice that one of my prospective co-workers is wearing a Slayer shirt and go, okay, sweet, I can wear t-shirts in here with bands on them. But, you know, it's always, it's nicer, I feel like, to just take that extra effort in the interview. And you can always, once you've gauged the work situation, once you've gotten the job, then that's where you can maybe, you know, pull back and go a little more casual if that sort of thing is acceptable and allowed. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great idea. Um, adding on to preparedness stuff. Um, and this is all, these are all things that you'd learn, you know, with some Google research. Uh, I highly recommend read up on, you know, interview tips. Some of it will be contradictory information um, or seem outdated, but get a swath of it and do your best to collect as much of it as you can. Before you go into a job, you're definitely going to want to have researched the company. Um, Things I have seen lose people jobs uh, in the interview. Not knowing the mission statement of a company. Um, not being prepared with knowing the job description really, really well. I'm trying to think what else. I, I'm thinking about a very particular time where I recommended somebody for a job and they came in just like so not ready for anything. Yeah, I mean, one thing I will always say, a good tip that was given to me, take notes. Yeah. Show up with, you know, uh, show up with a like a legal pad or if you've even better, if you've got a proper like professional looking notebook, like a moleskin or something that's bound, write down the name of your interviewer or interviewees. If you're in a group interview, write down the names of the other people, you know, write down if you get questions it, and it doesn't need even need to be that you like reference it constantly. You don't have to sit there and like make a point of writing more than you're talking. But, like, if they see you jotting things down, that shows a certain level of engagement. That shows that you're paying attention. If you reference your notes, that's usually a good thing. Again, not exaggerated, not a kind of thing where you have to, like, look down and read your stuff all the time. But it's good to just kind of do that just to show that you care. Look up boilerplate questions. The weaknesses thing, I'm glad that you point that out because I feel like that is kind of a thing. Um, asking Having an answer in hand when someone says, 
You know, what's drawing you to this job? Obviously, never say a paycheck. Right, um, yeah. Because no one really... No one really wants to hear that. But again, this is where research comes in. If you're working in an industry that you have some history in, talking about that history and what you're looking for it. If you don't know that much about it, but you've heard that they are a really, really great employer for um, people starting out uh, or that they have a really great record of treating their employees particularly well, that's something that's worth talking about. If you know anyone there obviously that's going to get you pretty far if you know that they're a late more laid-back atmosphere that's the kind of thing that works too if they're a well-established place that's a good thing to talk about if they're not so well-established place that's something you can talk about being excited about a new challenge or um helping a place grow from grow a little bit more from the ground up there are ways to spin all of this and if you're already prepared going in with ideas of how to answer that stuff, that's all the better. Yeah. The last thing I was going to say, like, like these, and this all goes in with the same theme of preparedness. Like, I think that's kind of the key. That's the word to underline for yourself there, Chris. Um, you're always going to have an opportunity where they turn it around and say, okay, do you have any questions? Is there anything you want to know from us? And I've struggled with that in the past. Just like, I mean, like, no, I mean, I, I think I understand everything. They, they aren't just looking for you to understand anything, but if you can research the company or the, you know, the environment and have some sort of question some specific question, some question about, you know, goals or datelines or, or just anything. It shows them that you're thinking and that's what they really want to see. The question I always like to ask is um, with people who've had this position in the past or people you've worked with in the past, um, what are qualities that you usually want to avoid in the people you hire? Sure. That's a good one. And then they give me they give me an answer, um, and then usually I and I'll, I'll try never to make this a monologue, but just in response to that, I try and think. Of, I'm fairly quick on my feet. I try and think of like a one two sentence way to just emphasize how I don't have that quality. If so, that could be a good place to start. But you know, you're Andy's absolutely right. Having a question there, having not just going like, "No, I'm good. Thank you so much for the for your time." Like, that sucks. That sucks. And I'm sure that there'll be someone in there who comes up with something better than that. Yeah. I mean, and your last impression is maybe not as important as your first impression, but it will help. Absolutely. You know, it's just it's one last thing for them to latch onto and remember you by. And you know, like like with the clothes, your last impression might not get you the job but it might prevent you from getting the job so i hope this helps chris hope that you know your your unemployment spell ends quickly and that you manage to find somewhere that you really like working this is wholly unrelated but just one last little piece of advice something that i've kind of come to grips with in my own life um recently your the, the job you always want and the career field you always want to go into, you might find yourself turning away from that and getting a career somewhere else. And that doesn't mean you're not going to love your job. So 
In any case, uh, this has been Love-Hate Relationship. And if you have a relationship question of your own, be it from a work context or a relationship that is romantic, familial, with your pet, with a friend, with anything. If it's a relationship question or if it's a really awesome tweet you saw on relationships.txt, you can send those in to us at lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even Tune in radio. Uh, hey, Mom. We would also absolutely love it, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it if you reviewed us on any or all of those, even. You can do all of them, you know? It's free. Uh, you can tweet us at LHRPod. That's L H R P O D with your questions. And follow us to keep up with new episodes. That's right. Um, If you happen to like movies, we talked about a TV show this time, but if you like movies, I do a film review podcast with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, and that is called Cult Fiction. You can find us at Cult Fiction Cast on Twitter, and it's available everywhere that this podcast is. Or if you want to find me personally, I'm Andy Bowell, and on Twitter, I am at JovoCop2113. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, y'all. As always, please tell your enemies.